Sydney Youth Orchestras acknowledge the Gadigal, Wangal and Baramadigal people of the Darug and Eora Nations, the traditional custodians of the land on which we perform and rehearse, and their connections to land, water and community. We, the young musicians of SYO, come together from the lands of many nations and peoples. We pay our respects to elders past and present. The original storytellers of these lands where we learn and create music today. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and honour the continuation of the oldest music practice in the world. If you could hear the orchestra of the future, what would it sound like? We see the world around us, but we very much hear the world around us. Welcome to Tempo. Proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. It was my whole social life as well, you know, with SYO on the weekends as I was a teenager and everything. Tempo speaks with some of the biggest names in orchestral music and explores their journey from youth orchestra to world stage. The violin was just the vehicle to get the music out there because people are impacted by that. And it features questions from us. With your host and renowned Australian conductor and SYO alumni, Matthew Curry. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm conductor Matthew Curry. I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast series and thrilled to be joined in conversation by some of the world's greatest musicians. I've been conducting for over 20 years and have had the pleasure of leading some of the greatest orchestras in the world. And I find everyone's journey to accomplishment is fascinating and full of lessons and great stories. And that's what this series will be exploring today. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with the award-winning composer, conductor and violist, Brett Dean. He is a Brizzy boy. He started with the violin, then switched to the viola. He performed with the Queensland Youth Orchestra, then the Australian Youth Orchestra, the Queensland Symphony before he landed a position in his 20s with the great Berlin Philharmonic. After a decade and a half with the Berlin Phil, Brett left to pursue a freelance career focusing on composition, and that leap has certainly been justified. His works have been performed by pretty much every major orchestra and opera house across planet Earth. Can I start by saying thank you, and let's go to the beginning. What's your earliest musical memory? I do remember being in an audience with my mum and dad and two brothers, Craig and Paul, at a concert of the Queensland Symphony. It wouldn't be my first musical memory, but certainly my first orchestral memory was seeing a performance of Brahms' first symphony that blew me away. It was the first time in any event that I remember orchestral music sort of lifting me by the seat of the pants and throwing me around the room. You'd started with the violin. Had you already been playing at that point or were you uh, when you went to that concert? Yeah, I was playing. I'd started on the violin, as you say, at about age of eight or so. I'd started playing in the Queensland Youth Orchestra by the following year almost, or maybe I was 10 by that stage. And the QIO had just started up their third symphony orchestra, the demographic that included kids at the end of primary school and beginning of high school, such as myself. And that was also a a turning point, certainly. What do you remember about playing in an orchestra for the first time. The thing about the QIO that was so, so important at that stage, given that I was playing a string instrument, which for a Brisbane school kid in the 60s going into the early 70s was not the done thing. So there was quite a bit of name calling and and bullying, which was hard to deal with. But the QIO gave me this sense of me not being a weirdo or certainly not the weirdo that my school friends and not-so-friendly friends were putting to me. 
although I could only articulate this much later in life, but it gave me a sense of purpose and a kind of fortitude too, that what I was doing was not only okay, it was shared by many like-minded and, and similarly aged kids as myself. The first specific orchestral memory from those experiences that I have was the very first concert that the QIO3, as it was called then and still is now, I guess, was a concert underneath the family home, that being a big old sprawling Queenslander with high wooden stilts, the family home of the Doherty family, Diana and Catherine and her many siblings were a, an absolute cornerstone of the Queensland Youth Orchestra at that stage. Among other things, we played bits of Beethoven's First Symphony. Way too difficult for us all, but we somehow scraped our way through the, the, the slow movement. And this was also the very first conducting engagement that I'm aware of, at least, of Richard Mills. He was the first conductor I ever played under, and that was his first conducting gig. And yeah, it was really, you know, formative. It it gave me a path ahead that I could see somehow. I'm not surprised. That's an incredible confluence of amazing influences coming together right at step one, really. When did you realize that or start to think that this might be something you could do forever? I mean, was your family musical? I know, obviously, your brother Paul is a renowned clarinetist and composer himself. Were your parents musicians? or? Yeah, there was quite a deal of music throughout both sides of my family. In fact, my grandmother on my mother's side was herself a music teacher, a singing teacher and piano teacher. There was a head start in that regard. Dad famously tried playing the violin when he was a kid, which apparently didn't go too well, but he it never dulled his absolute love of music. And he had a great record collection. So his instrument was the record player. And that was also quite significant, to be honest. Hearing Brahms' first symphony as maybe a 10 or 11-year-old, you know, it wasn't necessarily or by any means the first time I'd heard that piece. I'd no doubt heard it on on records. In fact, I do remember the pounding of the timpani the first time the record was put on. And how old were you when you realized that this could be something you could do professionally? I spent, I guess, one year with the Tiny Tots Orchestra QIO3. I then went through QIO2 for a couple of years and then made it into John Kuro's first orchestra, which was, you know, like making the premier division. By that stage, they'd already done their first international tour a couple of years before I joined. They'd gone to the International Festival of Youth Orchestras in Lausanne, Switzerland. And I remember by that stage, the, the family was so involved in the organization and the running of it. And my mum and dad were involved in you know running the canteen and cleaning and so on, that we were quite aware of the first orchestra's tour happening and embarking on that tour and so on, even though I, none of us were part of it. By the time I got into the orchestra, started playing there, worked my way, I was still playing fiddle at that stage, worked my way to lead the seconds. And this was also around the time that I was starting to play viola as well with my violin teacher, Elizabeth Morgan, cannily sort of recognizing that that might be a good 
shift and a good fit for me. So at that stage, I'd, I'd started playing viola, but it was my last year on violin, leading the second violins of the QIO. And playing, I do remember a performance of Holst's Planet Suite and pounding away on that rhythm in the first, in the Mars, the bringer of war, the first movement, thinking, wow, this is just such a, an enormous buzz, this feeling of collective endeavor. That's when I think that I started the shift towards being a, a full-time professional musician. The path was led by my older brother, Craig, who was an oboist, and he then went to the con when I was still in just the last couple of years of high school. He was leading the pack. Am I right in thinking that your trajectory is sort of Queensland Youth Orchestra, Australian Youth Orchestra, orchestral you played, I think, with QSO while you were a student, is that right? That's right. Your first professional appointment was Berlin Phil. Yeah. By the time I left Australia to go overseas, in fact, I wasn't so focused on, on orchestral playing. I was so smitten with the string quartet that I'd founded with three mates at the Queensland Conservatorium in our last couple of years of study. We were going to set the world on fire as a quartet. That was the intention. So when I left Australia... Uh, at the end of 1983, in fact, at the end of a QIO tour to Japan and China, I then went from there on to, to Europe. The plan was that the other three players would follow me within the next year or so, and we would study together as a quartet in Germany. So I'd, I'd won a place at the, the Berlin Hochschule der Künste, the, the College of Arts, to study with the wonderful German violist Wolfram Christ, who was also principal viola of the of Carrion's Berlin Philharmonic. The plan was that the other three would follow and that we would continue as the Ambrosian String Quartet, as we were known. All of my thoughts when I left Australia and, and went to study in Germany were based on, on the chamber music side of things. But in the course of the first year, I did some orchestral playing, above all with the chamber orchestra of the Junge Deutsche Philharmonie of the German Youth Orchestra movement. They had a really fantastic and and what could be called at that stage a semi-professional chamber orchestra we, we were paid a nominal fee for playing and we're doing gigs all over germany it was amazing so i was also learning german in the process and playing with some remarkable people i do remember playing an evening of bach and mozart piano concertos with mari pariah leading directly from the keyboard in a super small viola section of just four players and just feeling incredibly involved in this, the peak of Central European music making, you know. And then I had the fortune of playing as a casual player in the viola section of the Berlin Phil. So I was studying with Wolfram Christ, as I mentioned, he was the principal of the section. Through those connections, I was able to get some casual playing. And what was your first program? The very first program I played there was they were trying me out on a less complicated project, which was a, a choral concert. And so the very first piece I played in the Berlin Philharmonic Viola section was the Stabat Mater of Dvorak, which is not necessarily standard rep. It's a very beautiful piece. The orchestra in those days serviced, if you like, the, the local amateur choir scene by doing four choral concerts, one with each of the main amateur choruses in the city. There was no professional chorus in West Berlin in those days. The only professional choir in the region was the radio chorus, which was on the other side of the Berlin Wall in East Berlin. So when the orchestra did big choral projects, for example, 
conducted by Carrion and let's say Verdi Requiem or Beethoven 9 or so on. That was always with a guest choir. So they tried me out on this uh, Dvorak Stabatmater. I was placed next to an older colleague, member of the viola section, a wonderful man called Siegbert Überscher. Very gentle, kindly soul. And within, I guess, probably the first 15 minutes of my very first rehearsal there, I'd fallen into that inevitable trap when you're playing in an orchestra as a string player, particularly, especially in those days of, of the playing culture at that time, by coming in too early on a, on a downbeat, because the orchestra has still to this day this kind of Germanic thing of just waiting for the ictus of the beat before it responds. And it's then begun, particularly pizzicato chords, for example, are begun really by the, the principal bass and the bass section, and it sort of strums upwards like a giant guitar. And of course, with my exemplary QIO and QSO training, I came in with the conductor, as you're supposed to, and I was absolutely mortified, of course. I mean, it probably wasn't the thing that many people even noticed, but certainly the viola section and those around me did. You know, I thought, oh, that's it. That's my career with the Berlin Philharmonic done already on the first morning and was white as a ghost. And Siegbert next to me in the next available break just said, look, be calm, just breathe. And what I want you to do is just play with me as if we are the two players in a string sextet and we're playing Brahms, we're playing chamber music, we're breathing together. You'll get the hang of it. And sure enough, just with his guidance and good humor and, and body language, Already on that first morning, I, I worked out something about how that orchestra operates, something that even to this day is, is hard to kind of explain unless you're in it. Yeah. Everyone seems to, you know, that, that follows orchestral playing closely knows that Germanic orchestras in particular, and Berlin especially, they have this, this tendency of responding slowly to the beat. It wasn't always easy then to do different and, and a particularly newer repertoire. And it needed a very particular sense of conviction on the part of whoever was conducting. I didn't really get to do much new repertoire with Carrion. The, the most sort of recent scores at that stage of his conducting career that he was still conducting were Tone Poems of Strauss. 1906 would have been probably about the, the most recent <laughs> piece that he ever conducted in my time there, even though he, oh, no, that's not entirely true. We did once do the Berg Violin Concerto. That was a fascinating learning curve, a steep learning curve. But at the same time, what I I learnt from those experiences right from the start with players like Ziegbert and these incredible string sections all around me was just the the physical aspect of their playing. In the time that I was playing, particularly in my experience of professional orchestral playing in Australia before I left Australia, which was limited to the QSO and, and the QPO, or the Queensland Theatre Orchestra, as it was originally called. There were fascinating times in, in orchestral life in, in Australia, when in Queensland, especially in, in that time with these two very different orchestras. But it was quite a fascinating place to get to grips with professional working life. There were, in this not particularly musical and not especially big town in those days, it's, it's developed in all sorts of ways since. To have two orchestras that were offering casual work to young musicians like myself, it was amazing. Particularly then with Tintner's vast European experience thrown in. And he was one of the ones that encouraged me to study in Germany. I do remember, though, from that, those experiences that the culture of string playing was much more discreet and the 
top button was done up and it was all very kind of civilized and British in a way, you know, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't draw attention to yourself. Whereas you come to an orchestra like Berlin and if you're not giving it 110%, you're the, the odd one out. You know? yeah, right. And that really appealed to me and, and suited me as well, especially sitting at the back of the viola section when you're right in front of the, the bass section. So the violas traditionally in Berlin sit on the outside directly opposite the first violins. And then you have the basses right behind you. And you, I mean, literally going through one's back muscles, you feel this throb and energy of this remarkable bass section. You mentioned Von Karajan, and I guess you arrived sort of towards the end of his, well, the end of his life, really, the end of his tenure there. Yeah. I think you left before Rattle, or he'd perhaps Just started conducting. Simon Rattle starting. And I mean, it's fascinating. I'm so glad you talked to me about how the orchestra responds because as a I mean, even now as a conductor, I often look at the videos of Von Kayan especially and just think, how does anyone know what to do at <laughs> all? Does that actually work, yeah. Of course, he was a special and a very legendary fellow. How did you find working with him and what was your relationship or the, you know, your first time with him? Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak of a relationship with him. By that stage, he, as you mentioned, he was in the last years of his life. I was there, I guess, for the last five years, five seasons of, of his time in Berlin. He did actually leave the orchestra in a fit of peak just not long before he died. It was truly fascinating, though, because, again, my only experience of the orchestra up until that point had been the very occasional glimpse of videos. In those days, actually, the, on Sunday afternoons, before I left Australia, Sunday afternoons on the ABC, you could occasionally see orchestral concerts on the kind of arts program. That seems to be in a distant different age now. I remember that very well. I'd always try to be home on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, and, and Carrion and the Berlin Philharmonic were were no strangers to that program too. You'd see these. So then I found myself in the midst of some of these television productions because in that last phase of his life, he was very obsessed with shoring up his legacy for CDs, which were brand new. So the whole digital recording thing that was real raison d'etre of, of the recording industry was to record everything again digitally. So, you know, all the Brahms symphonies, all the Beethoven symphonies, all the Bruckner symphonies, one more time with feeling and with digital technology behind it. But also he was making lots of video productions as well. Bizarrely, the post-production for these continued even into well after his death. And we'd be called up to do sort of close-up angle shots of just the violas. And whether you were called up or not was determined by where you were sitting in the, in the section on the day of the original recording. Before he died, that was quite interesting too, because he would be there with maybe just six violas. And we'd actually then he would be quite chatty when it, when it was in a smaller constellation of players. He was you know, quite affable. And you could sense also that he had been very close, certainly to some players in the orchestra. But as I say, by the time I joined, there was this kind of distance. And I remember being asked to play on the front stand for one program that he was conducting so that he could check me out more closely. And I was then introduced to him after that program and he shook my hand. I remember being surprised at how soft and cold his hand was <laughs> and small. They always look bigger on TV, but uh, he was quite a, quite a diminutive figure. Then by that stage of his life, he was not walking freely and 
a man of waning powers, it must be said. But yeah, I mean, it was truly fascinating. The other thing that, that was unmistakable, unmissable when you come into this from Brisbane and all of a sudden are in the, the epicenter of orchestral music was the, the sense of entourage as well, you know, the, the hangers-on, the recording exec company executives and the, the promoters and so on. There was this whole buzz every time Carrion was in the building, which was very exciting. You know, it's, it's hard even now to think of classical music in those terms. It was big business and, and all that that all the good and bad that that brought with it but it was it was very exciting cuz you felt something was happening and the tours particularly the last couple of tours that Carrion was able to do with the orchestra were remarkable especially the final tour that he made to Japan which you know the place that really embraced Carrion and the Philharmonic in the 50s when they first made their their first appearances there you have three different careers going on simultaneously, four or five sometimes, I think, if you count music direction and leading institutions. So I'm going to jump now to your compositional career, but which, of course, started while you were still playing in the orchestra. How did you get started? Am I right in thinking that composition actually came quite late to you, really? Yeah, it came very left of field, too. I mean, uh, the person that really got me into composing or, or first of all, improv performance later than more sort of notated composition was a Sydney-born rock musician called Simon Hunt, who then became famous, infamous almost, as Pauline Pantsdown. In, back in the, the first era of Pauline Hanson, he created this, this uh, satirical character. But it was with, with Simon that firstly I started improvising. He was a good family friend of my wife Heather's family and came to Berlin with a, a rock band from Sydney called Bring Philip. They'd made a couple of EPs back home and they were trying their luck to crack into the European scene. And somehow, this is then going a couple of years further after getting the job and so on, and I was well into the, the routine of the whole symphony orchestra thing and enjoying it hugely. But it was kind of uncanny that the similarities that we discovered in that Simon, who'd been with this band already for several years, they were trying their luck at making it big in Europe. And I was, you know, enjoying the life of a tutti viola player, a rank and file viola player in this wonderful orchestra and so on. In both Simon's and my case, there was this sort of untouched or unscratched itch to do something more. We sort of bonded over, first of all, improvisation, getting together in this wonderfully bizarre studio that his band rented right near Checkpoint Charlie, so was, the wall was still standing. This place was in a cellar of an apartment building near Checkpoint Charlie, as I say, in Kreuzberg. He got me along there. It had basically two acoustic spaces. It had the room where they actually rehearsed, which you know was a rock rehearsal studio with egg carton type dampening on the walls, very dead sound. And then there were these long concrete corridors that were very boomy and, and resonant. And he'd been asked to do some music for an experimental film that had been made by a couple of Aussie filmmakers that he knew from Sydney that were in Berlin as well on a, on a scholarship. Can I ask, was that a short black and white film? Yeah. 
Well, it wasn't that short, actually. It was about 40 minutes long, but yeah. The reason I ask is because I think I caught the end of it on SBS once, watched the end to find out who it was, and saw your name. I went, I think that's the Aussie guy that plays in Berlin Phil. And I remember then, of course, a few years later, I then started to see your concert compositions come into the world. It didn't take long to be bitten by the compositional bug. And what started in these little projects for experimental film and very rustic, very simple from a technological point of view, it was, I mean, some things that we did, some sessions, entire sessions we did were only directly onto cassette tape. Like for that film, that was at least on a, on a reel-to-reel machine. But, you know, this was all pre-digital. I guess what I was getting at earlier is that we both recognised in getting together and making music together what had been otherwise missing in our professional musical lives in you know what one could call the, the nine to five part of the of the existence in my case the formal sort of rehearsing and performing with a symphony orchestra for simon it was you know playing keyboards in this in this band and it was that sense of it sort of reaching other parts of my musical sense of ambition and intrigue and so on that really captured me absolutely and then you know my waking hours also into the early hours of the morning after orchestral concerts in many cases were absolutely occupied by composition that just took over how long did it take you from starting to compose and get hunger to do it, to go, I'm going to leave the orchestra and pursue this. I mean, you already had some fairly big successes. I know Ariel's music had been a, the concerto you wrote for your brother Paul had been a great success. And there'd been chamber works, I think, that had been performed and recorded. I'm, maybe Carlo had come into the world already. Yeah. So you'd had some big hits. <laughs> yeah. But only a handful. So, But it must have still felt like a real leap to leave the orchestra, which was very comfortable, well-paid and uh, secure existence. What were you thinking? Why did you feel you had to do that? Well, ironically, it was partly that sense of security that became daunting as well. And I'd have to say also, you know, my wife, Heather, who's a freelance visual artist, and so was living also the the freelance artistic existence already, played a huge role in this and through her encouragement as well. And in a way, I mean, it, it took until I'd been in the orchestra. I was in my 15th season when I decided to, to leave and, and try the, the composing thing full time and, and the freelance existence. One of the motivating factors was indeed the sense of knowing with such certainty what my life was going to look like for the following 30 plus years. I mean, I would still be there now at the age of 62 colleagues that I joined the orchestra with who are still there are, are now in their golden years and, and approaching retirement, and which is fine too. You know, it's a wonderful way to, to conduct and live a musical life. But I wanted less certainty, not more somehow. I saw that as my ticket to ride a much wilder ride. One of the things that strikes me, knowing you as a professional, knowing you as a friend over the years and a colleague, is that you've always presented as quite a relaxed, chilled person. And I always quite like to stand back and hope you don't mind me saying, think, this is an extraordinary gentleman who's obviously an outstanding creative artist, really curious mind, but is very laid back, late in life, took this leap. And then this career that I imagined you'd hope sustained yourself actually has blossomed into something quite enormous. 
do you mind me asking, just saying, where does your ambition fit into this? And what did you imagine? Because part of me thinks leaving, being a professional composer, but then getting commissions from Berlin, from the Met, Glyndebourne and things like this, I'm not sure every composer could really imagine that's what's going to happen. No, well, certainly I didn't. I felt that the time I left the orchestra, I had enough promises of commissions. And it must be said also a, uh, a connection then to Boozy and Hawks, the publishing house. I think without that, it would have been much more fearful of taking that plunge. And they've been enormously supportive through all of this. But no, I mean, you, you kind of dream of certain things, but it's blossomed in ways that I couldn't have possibly imagined. Ambition is a funny thing, and it's a funny thing to kind of identify and define and quantify. And I remember quite early on also, even perhaps before I'd really sort of uh, got to this point of taking up composition, but I remember coming across the saying that true happiness comes with the end of ambition, that ambition can be the beast that's biting its own tail a lot of the time. As a creative, one is sometimes also aware of being almost unhealthily obsessed with how am I doing? Because you've, you know, you've got to sustain this thing, you know, so you've, I've jumped off this spinning wheel that's, you know, going around very nicely. And I didn't really have to do much to keep it going around nicely, the whole wonderful symphonic orchestral tradition that I was part of. And then you've got to sustain it yourself. And that does take quite a deal of invention, not only the compositional side of it, the actual creative side of it, but the rest as well. And as I say, I mean, being taken up by a publishing house was a huge factor. Two years in, I was then taken on by Intermusica, an artist management company, which at the time was still kind of in its beginnings, in based in London, and is now one of the big players on the scene. And they've been also enormously helpful. I think it's fair to say that they've been part of also helping me think bigger than I otherwise might have. That's extraordinary because, I mean, one of the things I look at also with you is you've been incredibly prolific as a composer. I counted your works on your Mabusian Hawks page, and I counted 109, I think it was. And that doesn't include the reworkings of your own works or the or the arrangements of other people's works. I was quite amazed by that. And I thought, I'm well, hang on. surprised by that number myself. <laughs> <laughs> you should. I think it's accurate. The thing that struck me is like, God, that's a lot. And I thought, well, hang on. You still perform as a violist at a at a high level. You're doing chamber music often with quintets, so there's a Bajonian quartet. You're still playing concertos. And you conduct, which involves a lot of preparation. I sort of think, I was thinking, where do you find the time? How do you do it? Again, an interesting quote that I came across not that long ago from Daniel Barenboim. I mean, the busiest musician I've ever encountered, also doing so much at such a high level. Not the composing thing, which and always intrigued me. What would his music have been like had Barenboim turned those unbelievable gifts that he has also to, towards composition. But performance as a pianist and a conductor, a great thinker and spokesperson for socio-political and cultural issues of the day, running the state opera in Berlin for how many years? 30 years, close to, or something? Perhaps even more, I can't remember exactly. And he said in an interview that the knack is only to do one thing at any time. That is, you know, just don't try and keep multiple balls in the air, although 
I'm not sure that he always lived by that himself. You know, I mean, he would be doing a recital, Beethoven piano recital one night and be conducting us the next. There is something in that. There's, there's wisdom in there that I have tried to remember at times that it's all doable, but don't try and do them all on the same day. Just factor in conducting the preparation time involved, but also keeping instrumental skills at an acceptable required level is, <laughs> is no mean feat. And you have to develop a kind of discipline of how to go about that, because there are times and I've just coming out of a, a period of quite intense composition as the m absolute main thing and almost only thing in the last few months, a big orchestral piece for the London Philharmonic. And coming back into into playing, you have to work out ways of addressing the fact that you've barely touched the instrument, I have to admit, in that time. I did squeeze in a, a tour with the Doric Quartet playing Beethoven's remarkable and, and strangely not very well-known quintet, Opus 29, string quintet. Everyone plays Mozart and Brahms and so on, but Beethoven's quintet is extraordinary, but it gets sort of shadowed by all, all the other amazing quintets there are and his own quartets and so on. But anyway, that was fantastic because it, it sort of gave me this little bit of playing just to keep in touch with it. But uh, I'm now entering a phase where I have to do some serious practice. Yeah. I have a string trio and a piano quartet of my, my own, which is holy moly. I mean, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it's really <laughs> difficult. There are those... Aspects to it, you just have to be well organized with your time, and it, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't always work. You know, you realize, oh, this is a bit of a panic. I, yeah. <laughs> I wish I had another couple of days. The other thing I want to ask you when I went through your composition list again is about the diversity of your inspirations. But actually, I think the interesting thing is, especially with composition, it requires a lot of thought and inspiration. I think. Well, if you're writing something on when you wrote the opera Bliss, obviously you've read these novels, you're reading, you've still got time to soak up stuff. As you get busier and busier, do you find it harder to engage with these things that you might potentially be the kernels of new pieces? Is there a balance there you have to find? Oh, it's a very, very interesting point that you raise. I mean, I guess one of the things that one has to remember and, again, also cordon off time for is the time to ponder the time to consider, the time to read books, to go and see exhibitions or movies too. I must say I do find cinema is quite an inspiring thing. Up until 2020 when this thing happened, up until that time, I must say, I, I think looking back on the pre-COVID time, I was extremely busy. One of the dangers then when you sort of get onto this other hamster wheel is that it's very difficult to say no to things too. I mean, you know, I've been in the privileged position of having wonderful opportunities, but sometimes you do actually have to turn some of them down. And then all of a sudden, you know, with COVID, everything stopped. Whilst it was time that I'm sure most of us don't want to ever go back to and so on, but there were these aspects of that first experience of lockdown that were quite illuminating, despite obviously also all the tragedy that was unfolding all around us all. I'm certainly not the only person that at the same time thought, wow, but isn't it interesting? One of the things that the influences I found interesting is the that went into Hamlet or came out of Hamlet, actually. Am I right in thinking that around Hamlet, there are four or five other works that went into it or came out of it? I'm not sure what went in, what came out. 
and I'm a bit intrigued with this because I've noticed your works have often reimagined themselves in different ways or been preludes to another work. And I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that. There are, I think, five or even six works, and they do fall into those two categories. At least three of them happened before Hamlet actually opened in Glyndebourne in 2017 and were very much significant stepping stones towards writing the full opera. And then a couple of them have happened subsequently, in one particular case, very much an extraction from Hamlet, a concerto for accordion and, and small orchestra that, that is very much based on the material that was brought to life so wonderfully by James Crabb in Glyndebourne and elsewhere. A couple of further pieces that have still been sort of obsessed. It was hard to, <laughs> to disembark from that extraordinary ship after Hamlet had actually opened. So there's a bass clarinet piece that is not really based on the same material, but wouldn't exist were it not for the experience of having written Hamlet. It's called Confessio and is sort of a scene of Claudius's confession, but with completely different material. That leads me to the work that the London Philharmonic's premiering. Am I right in thinking that that is also a work that will be subsumed into an opera? Another one? Yeah, that is very much a stepping stone towards an opera that's further down the track now. Right. And he's also the third of pieces that are sort of leading me in that direction. So that the basic premise of what will hopefully then be an opera called Two Queens is looking at the relationship and the standoff, if you like, between Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor, and the time in particular that Mary was basically held under house arrest or even genuine imprisonment by Elizabeth for something like nearly 20 years in the 1570s through to her execution in 1586 or 7. But what we're, we're doing, and we being, again, I'm working with Matthew Jocelyn, who compiled Shakespeare's words so brilliantly and, and shaped them into the libretto for our Hamlet opera, is looking at the words of Mary Stuart and Elizabeth I and telling the story verbatim opera, basically. The works that exist thus far, first of all, I wrote a cycle of songs just using Mary Stuart's words alone for mezzo-soprano, written for my daughter Lottie Bedstein, string quartet, and it was premiered by Lottie and the Armida Quartet from Germany. Uh, that's a piece called Madame Ma Bonne Soeur, and is taken from her letters to Elizabeth. And then there was a piece for solo harpsichord called Bird Song Studies. After William Bird, I take it. Yeah, which examines the music of William Bird as a, another source towards this subject matter, because William Bird also stood on the cusp of the divide between Protestantism and Catholicism. He was a practicing Catholic, but was employed by Elizabeth I in a Protestant court, so was writing courtly music for Elizabeth and some choral music, but at the same time writing clandestine Latin mass settings, like the masses for three, four, and five voices, for secret Catholic services. So it was almost like the days of the Cold War. So you've used his story as some something of your own inspiration in the opera. Yeah, certainly as a, as a further musical source. His story may be less so, but we're not sure, and it's still a kind of work in progress. Finally, this work that's being premiered in London 
What's that called, by the way, Brett? That's called inspe contra spem, hope against hope. It's taking the words of Mary and Elizabeth, and we'll feature two sopranos who are basically the two queens of, of the story. And they famously never met, even though in all the films you see, or TV dramatizations, it always climaxes with a standoff in the same room between them. And in a sense, this opera will feature that kind of standoff, even though in another sense, they're not actually necessarily in the same room together. That's something that a director will have to figure out for themselves. You um, mentioned something there well, compositionally that I find interesting. You chose to use two sopranos, not a mezzo or an alto and a, or a countertenor. And that's, I think, almost unheard of, isn't it, in opera, to have the two main leads of the same voice? I can't think of anything. Bliss actually had two sopranos. Well, I'm not sure you can quote yourself there as a source. No, I, no, no, no. But uh, certainly Donizetti's Maria Stuarda, which is based on the Schiller play, and of course then famously the climax of that is where they have a standoff, a sing-off. One of them is a mezzo and the other's a, a soprano. Somehow, in a way, I, I found it more interesting that they're vying for supremacy on the same platform, if you like. And that there's not already this kind of implied sense of one being subordinate or below the other. But at the same time, they're quite different types of voices. I mean, I, I've stipulated that Mary, and this will reflect through the orchestration too, that Mary is a lighter, higher maybe soubrette type of soprano by comparison to Elizabeth, who has tenure and has all the cards, basically. She's the undoubted, the one that's instigating and determining, if you like, and has all these men around her. And so there's a kind of bigger, more almost Wagnerian dramatic soprano lurking in, in that role. In a way, whilst they're two sopranos, they, they hopefully come across as you know quite different characters. Brett, I have a million other questions I'd love to throw at you, but uh, I'd rather you got back to composing or practicing or, or pondering or whatever you want to do. However, we have what we do at the end of these interviews is what we call the final bar, and I ask you four quick questions that have come from members of the Sydney Youth Orchestra. Great. The first one is from Chloe, who plays the violin, and she asks, what was your greatest challenge or fear that you had to overcome? Oh, look, in some ways, and, and particularly from a sort of youth orchestra perspective, I must say doing an audition in front of the Berlin Philharmonic was one of those days that you kind of call on all your reserves of conviction and confidence. The next question is from Hayden, who plays the bassoon, and he asks, why did you change from the violin to the viola? My teacher at the time, Elizabeth Morgan, who cannily and I think very correctly identified that I was a viola type. She herself was a violist as well. Somehow she recognized at just the right point also in, in my life, and I was tall enough and big enough to, to cope with a larger instrument, but also she could recognize something about my musical personality at that stage, which I couldn't have been able to make that decision on my own that somehow being inside the music in the engine room, what I really sort of took to right from the start of playing viola was playing in quartets. Being inside the music was really where I wanted to be, not sort of galloping around on the top of the musical stave. This is from Erica, who plays the violin, and she asks, what is the most useful piece of advice you've ever received? 
I mentioned Richard Mills, who was my first ever conductor. And he was also then, uh, Richard sort of popped up at significant moments in my life. So, I mean, already that experience was very formative, as I mentioned, but he was the first person also to commission me to write an orchestral piece. And that ended up being Ariel's Music, which is a concerto that I wrote for my brother Paul, and it was premiered by the QSO on the German conductor Markus Stenz's first ever tour to Australia, incidentally, in 1995. And after the performance, the next day, Paul and I were invited to Richard's place for a barbecue. And he took me aside and said, you've got to compose. You know, you've got to take this seriously. And I'm very grateful for that because it was, it takes somebody who's also, he was a very well-established composer himself at that stage. It takes somebody to then say those words somehow and, and for them to really resonate. Yeah, fantastic. And the final question is from Mia, who plays the cello. And she asked, what's the hardest piece you've ever played or conducted? Conducting, I'd say one of the hardest scores I've ever conducted, but it was a thrill to do so, was Tevot by Thomas Adders, which I did with the um, Melbourne Symphony. Took quite a bit of the aforementioned preparation. (laughs) Playing-wise, yeah, I don't want to bring myself into it too much, but uh, there's a piece of mine that I'm about to record later this year for viola and piano that is also a Hamlet-related score. It's called Rooms of Elsinore, and it's sort of seven scenes, seven movements that look at different geographical locations in the in the Hamlet story, or within the castle of Elsinore. And it's one of the hardest <laughs> things. Again, talk about, you know, I've only got myself to blame. That's true. I mean, I do hope other people will take up the piece. Some others have played it, but it's, it's pretty damn hard. I was really pushing the envelope there, and uh, yeah. I could always rewrite it, of course. It's mine. I can do with it what I like. But I like the challenge, too. It keeps me fit. Fair enough. Brett, I appreciate your time so much today. It's been a fascinating interview. I look forward to seeing and hearing more of you when I can. Thanks so much, Matt. I've really enjoyed it. All the very best wishes to the SYO. And, uh, yeah, play your hearts out. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it, rate it, write a review, tell your friends, subscribe wherever you can get podcasts. It's always nice to share musical inspiration. Thanks again for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Tempo, proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to click follow. For more information about SYO, visit syo.com.au.